I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Hi. And welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on – oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I really – we can't take a week off because then I forget things. Okay. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijing, who apparently can't speak today. You know, I thought like recording early in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to be so like fucking caffeinated. Oh, I'm going to yeah. be so awake and like right. alert. And then of course, you know, like everything, I wake up like 30 minutes before I'm supposed to do it. I'm like, mm, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I haven't had any time to like look anything back over or, yeah. nope, just fresh as a daisy, a recently awake person. It's great. I mean, it's just been one of those weeks, like, as you know, um, I am currently in, going to be in between jobs pretty soon. And so it's been like, <laughs> this, like, oh, yeah, we still have a podcast. Um, so it's been quite a uh, an experience um, just trying, you know, I mean, we're, 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 we are in the midst of a, a global health crisis, I have to keep reminding myself and ourselves. I mean, yeah, so... So, I mean, you bring up a great segue into my next topic, just like a quick little quad check because, you know, we're oh, all yeah. in this together, yeah. et cetera. I won't seem ima- imagine at you, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> how are things? Oh, God. Yeah. First of all, I fucking hate that song. And oh. second of all, there's absolutely nothing more condescending than a bunch of rich white people singing a song if, at you. If just you give money going, and shut yes. the fuck up. In this, in in a slew of, of yeah, terrible off-pitch renditions where one video put it best. They had the accompanist, this guy on a piano, pitching it oh, up I and down. I think he sent me this. As he each sent me this celebrity video. came in to the recording. Um, that be a Lady Gaga, you know? Put your money, put money where your mouth is and actually donate to the cause rather than posting if or more people could just be like videos. Lady Gaga and Rihanna, our Seriously. lives would just be better. But instead... You know, we're we're at home. So how so we took last week off because I was overwhelmed by life and you also were 
getting a new job. Um, so other than that, what how else has your quarantine going? I mean, it's not quarantine because technically, like, we're not sick, so we're not in quarantine, but we're like in self isolation. Sorry, I know it's semantics, but it makes me crazy. No, I know. I yeah, it's been man. I mean, you know, for every day that I'm like, oh, I baked a loaf of bread. Oh, I did this. I've had days where I'm like, um, should I keep watching another episode of this TV show that was on 20 years ago, which will be later a good segue into our episode. But but how are you doing? <laughs> um, You know, some days, I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast. I've definitely mentioned it in real life, but as a freelancer, I work from home a lot. And also as somebody who's spent a majority of their life poor and not able to go out, staying home is not something that's completely foreign to me. But then every once in a while, I'll like go through my camera roll and just be like, remember wineries? <laughs> remember going outside? <laughs> I, dude, I haven't been in a car in like a month. Like it's supposed to be nice this week, which makes me quite frankly, livid on the inside because I'm like, great. It's going to be fucking nice outside. All these goddamn bozos are going to be outside without their fucking masks, like coughing all over each other. I mean, granted, like all the protests from last weekend, like made like truly like blew my mind, like (sighs) insane. But also, you know, of course, these are the same people that say like, you know, they won't let an invisible virus ruin their life, but they let an invisible man ruin their life and his name is god so that's a completely separate story but i just it just makes me so mad but um on friday so some of our friends that live you know a mile away from us they are real adults and they own a home and they have an extremely nice large backyard so i'm going to take my plot cards over there and work on them in the sun in their yard within the safety of someone's fenced in patch of nature so i don't have to worry about people getting too close to me because dude i mean i thought i was gonna slap this man the other day on a walk with murray because he just i was wearing a mask he wasn't wearing a mask and usually what i've noticed since i've started wearing one while just even just walking around in the neighborhood is that people will get out of your way because i think it just shows that you like take it a little bit more seriously than just say like a regular person who thinks that they're like invincible or whatever no so mostly mostly it's been fine But the other day I was like walking with Mary and like there were, you know, I try to go out like later in the evening or like earlier in the morning to avoid more people. But as I'm walking down the street and it's like 536 o'clock. So like that's on me. I should have maybe waited a half hour maybe. But there are like a few people in the streets. But like, look, if a mother and her two children on bikes can get out of my way, you, a single white man in your 40s, can fully get out of my fucking way because I have a dog like I can't maneuver around you plus you're closer to the street anyway he walks right by me locks eyes with me and then just smiles and it took every ounce of self-preservation to not turn around jump on his back and slap him in the fucking face because it just made me so mad like the audacity like he gave me like a patronizing smile as if like i am being overreactionary because I'm wearing a mask. It's like, dude, you're a dick. Like, clearly I'm uncomfortable. Can you just maybe take a half a step to the side and get out of the fucking way? But whatever. (laughs) Anyway, that is my rant. And that's why, like, the nice weather makes me... It makes me absolutely insane. Yes, I'm fine. If I ever see him again, I will ruin his life the way that... Well, this happened a long time ago. But there was a father in the park who once kicked Murray when we had him, when we first got him. And I was so mad because he was, like, playing soccer. Murray's a dog. And so he was chasing after a ball. And the dude didn't like it. So he kicked Murray. Oh, my God. And so God. I screamed at him at the park. 
And the dude was like, he basically tried to make it seem like I was a crazy bitch, but he was an asshole. Um, I've even had neighbors afterwards that were like, yeah, that guy fucking sucks. Like afterwards, like saw me screaming at him in the park. But then I saw him one time again, like a year later in the park and he and I locked eyes. And when he saw me, he looked really terrified. Oh, good. You established your dominance. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then I went a step further, Emily, because you know I'm insane. And then I looked at him and just mouthed, fuck you. (laughs) Oh, I just mouthed, fuck you, super intensely at him while looking at him. And then I just walked away. And I don't think I've ever seen him in the park ever since. So, yeah, I took a shit all over that guy. So, yeah, if I ever see that man who walked past me, trust and believe he will get a new asshole torn. That's just kind of like my specialty, not to brag. (laughs) No, I mean, it's something I admire about you. I've always said that I wish I could be more confrontational about things versus my passive aggressive bullshit. I would love to be more like that. Um, I've seen, man, like throughout this whole thing, you know, and I, I, it's always been a sign for me of like, I get worried because I go out on a walk and I'm like, did I touch anything? Was I too close to people? And I think that mentality has been good in this sense of my like slight codependency issues has actually been really helpful in navigating this because I know that I abide by the rules for the most part um, as a result because of how afraid I am of getting someone sick. Um, But for me, it's been pretty amazing to see like a wide array of, I'm not here to be like Instagram police, but like, Stories I've seen of people who still are seeing like a lot of people at once. Like, I know we're allowed to have our little quarantine pod or whatever it's called, but I'm talking about seeing people who are like showing off Instagram stories where they're hanging out with like five or six people. And I have to believe, like, I don't know. And in an indoor location, like, I don't think these people have been in self-isolation, you know, self-isolating together this whole time. Like that for me was been a, has been a little uh, interesting to say the least. I'm trying not to judge, uh, but I, I am silently judging. But I think you should judge. I think the only I mean, maybe this is just the repressed Catholic in me, but I do believe that if you judge more and shame people, they'll either stop or they'll keep doing it, but tell you less about it. The thing that I found funniest was that, well, I guess it's not technically like very funny, but I do feel like sometimes it feels like karma doesn't work fast enough. You're like, God, I wish this fucking idiot would like get what's coming to them. And then it never happens. You're like, that was deeply unsatisfying. But one thing that's good about Twitter is that if somebody is acting a complete messy fool, they will fo- they will oh, follow yeah. them and they will also then follow up and find out what they've been up to. So there was like yeah. some mommy blogger that's like, we're going about our lives. Like, this oh is ridiculous. God, yes. Like, masks off, hug your people. Like, don't be a sheep. And it's like multiple, t- it's multiple tweets of her like going to fucking toddler birthdays and all yes. this other insane shit. Yes, it's all and the fundy the bloggers, tweet- fucking fundy bloggers yeah. who come in and they're like, well, I mean, today we tried to establish some sense of normalcy while my friends and I decided to go to Target. I'm like, yeah, clearly you weren't going for essential shit. You were going to hang out together and I'm sure as hell no, you weren't wearing masks and practicing social distancing and going for non-essentials. Yeah, I mean, we had talked about that Ariel Charnas drama because that was truly fascinating than all that Kristen Cavallari shit. Oh, um, but anyway, the last tweet of, all, of this series of this woman saying that, you know, I'm not letting this ruin my life, which like, I just think it's hilarious. Just like people who bought guns, I'm like, you can't shoot the virus. The virus doesn't <laughs> care if like, you're not going to let it win. Like, it's going to do what it's going to fucking do. Like, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, the last tweet, because I will get to this point. 
she basically just says like, I have 105 fever for three days in a row and I still can't get a test. And I was like, bitch, like, duh, I don't even know what to tell you. No sympathy. It, just, it makes me no sympathy. I Look, I really don't. I do not shed tears for people who are willfully ignorant and yep. dumb. Like, you know, 53% of white people women that voted for Trump. Like, I don't fucking care about you or your life. Feminism does not apply to you at all. So shout Actually, out. Actually, quite the opposite. <laughs> shout out to like, my friend. Like, you get friend. extra patriarchy. <laughs> shout out to my friend, Mark. Speaking of these idiots who are trying to protest their way into their parent personal rights. I get a, a text from my friend Mark this morning. And it's one of those pictures where you have like the woman in the driver's seat of the car yelling out about her rights, while a guy, uh, a medical professional in scrubs is like blocking the car. I, I'm sure everyone's seen a variation. Oh, right. That of the happens picture. like in Denver, right? Right, 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 right. So someone wrote, it's a wee bit ironic. He's in scrubs and she's hanging out the passenger side of her best friend's ride trying to holler. And I, I mean, from an old millennials oh, perspective, no. if anything were ever more on brand than coronavirus shaming idiots who are thinking that this virus is like not going to get them if they go about their business um, while using a TLC reference is just chef's kiss. Well, I will say one thing that truly made me laugh last week. I mean, and I did it to myself. I made a hair appointment for June 13th. <laughs> you know, I have one <laughs> mid-May. No judgment. You know, I just I just wanted to feel wildly hopeful even for one second. I and know. it truly made me laugh. And then what made me laugh even harder was that my hairstylist sent me a follow-up email basically saying, yeah, well, we'll see if we're even open by then, which I was like, yes, <laughs> this is the dose of reality that I currently deserve. So yeah, if you want to feel like just a rush of anything at all, like make an appointment for the future, like just feel wildly hopeful for one second. It'll just make you giggle. Um, so for the purposes of this episode, what, because we're going to talk about some prestige TV because we are, I mean, what a time to be trapped inside, not trapped, yeah. but you know, what a time to be stuck at home, right? I feel like months ago, it was like a luxury to have to complain about the fact that I haven't had the chance to watch Fleabag or I haven't. Because I've watched a lot of the dramas. Like when we were talking about prestige TV and what we wanted to cover, I've seen a lot of these shows. Yeah. But like Fleabag is like the most recent one, um, a succession. But I finished that over winter, which was a complete fucking delight. Like cannot. Ugh, I can't um, wait to I finish can't it. recommend it enough. It's, oh, I mean, the worst so part exciting. about coronavirus is that they had to pause filming of season three. I just fell to my knees and screamed. I'm like, we must get back to work, but only succession. Only, only the succession. cast of succession. The Roy family must, must work. still work. <laughs> I think that we should also do like a follow up episode of prestige tv of stuff that's disappointing because right now i'm watching westworld and it's just fucking awful and it just got renewed for three more fucking seasons Why? in what world Why? this goddamn show goes on for three more seasons no i was seriously crossing my fingers I'm like you know what if they go out this season the way that it, the way that it is great cool we've like done a thing we did it but no three and more meanwhile fucking seasons. like it's unbearable, and meanwhile other Emily. shows like yeah and then meanwhile other shows like enlightened who which i loved with laura dern like just um yes deserved so much more and only got two seasons, which 
just so disappointing. I or even if I mean The Walking Dead, which yep. was just like I mean, talk about had like a perfect first season and then completely shit the bed. This is but there yeah. are also things like happy endings, like yep. co- some comedies that I thought really like like ABC really had some amazing comedies. For that, that flew one, yeah, that, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment Twenty Three and Happy Endings a were perfectly around. Perfectly written show, perfectly, perfectly I mean, written show, perfectly, and just like seeing the trajectory of all those writers' rooms, which we'll talk about in this episode for sure, because I think that's another common factor for all four of the shows we're covering. It's just like, of course, showrunner, we're always they're always geniuses, but more than anything, it's the writers' room that they kept that was out of this world. Like, just everyone has gone on to pretty much better. Um, not even necessarily better, but amazing things. Well, even, I mean, we don't talk about Mad Men in this episode, but uh, Mad Men had an insane writer's room. I mean, they had Marty Knox in in that fucking room. It's like, and I think that the rise of prestige TV also kind of not only like brought showrunners to prominence, but you becoming fans of specific like episode writers. Totally. People who really love Jennifer Hudson, or I'm sorry, not Jennifer Hudson, <laughs> Jennifer Hud- uh, Hutchinson from Breaking Bad. Like she's written some extremely iconic episodes that people just completely love. Peter Gould wrote a bunch of Breaking Bad episodes that ended up having him spin off um, Better Call Saul with Vince Gilligan. Like that's all really interesting. And a book that I'm going to talk about quite a bit throughout is this book called Difficult Men, which really focuses on the writer's room of these prestige dramas and how they just kind of came to be. A lot of it, of course, is I knew a guy who knew a guy and these are my friends and that kind of stuff. But then there are also some people like Matthew Weiner who are like, I wanted to get the best of the best who knew exactly what I was talking about. And that's how we ended up with like a Marty Noxon and a couple of other writers that names escape me now. But if you were to ask me this question like 2009, I couldn't name the entire fucking writer's room. I I was obsessed with that show. No, same. I mean, like it it just out of control. Amazing. And and even on the comedy side, like just the whole uh, Greg Daniels, Micah Shore. Embarrassment Embarrassment of riches. I mean, even I mean, we're talking about. I mean, I guess Arrested Development is was a, a cable show, or I'm sorry, not a cable show, network. a broadcast network show. Yeah. But NBC, like between Thirty Rock and Parks and Rec, like they had another Friends Seinfeld esque run. I mean, that Thursday in night mid two thousand was Community really as well. Community. Talk about another show that like didn't get a a significant or didn't get like a fair shake at all, but. Are there any dramas that you're choosing to revisit in this time? Sure. In these uncertain times, as Domino's Pizza would tell us? Yeah. So in these uncertain times, nothing can feel better than a can of Pepsi. No. Um, (laughs) Than a medium-sized pepperoni pizza. (laughs) So for me, it's not even revisiting, it's visiting. So for you, how you were saying you weren't on the dramas um, or you had never never seen any of these comedies, I had seen a lot of these comedies. I had... Hadn't seen a lot of these dramas. Like I feel like the first prestige drama I got into was oh, Mad Men, um, and then you know a few make others. No mistake, Emily. I've seen all of the comedies too. I don't. I mean, I I have. I mean, film school. I I've watched every fucking show. It's just very rare that I find somebody who f- has watched all of the weird shit that I've also watched. So I I think the only comedy I never made it around to that I just started watching is Veep. But also oh, it's a little I too love. real in some ways. Yeah. Um, I, so it's it's been a slow burn to get well, through it. For sure. And I think probably I watched it as it aired on TV. So I was a huge fan of Veep. And it sub- yeah. subsequently Silicon Valley was also airing at the same time. So I watched both of those pretty much while as they were airing. Um, for me, I Veep- mean, Silicon Valley premiered when you and I were both like at startup. So it was almost like watching a documentary because right. I'll never forget that pilot exactly. where they're at that party. And you're like, I've been to this 
fucking party before well, and me, it's just as cringy watching it as it is to be there. It's funny you say that. So actually, I wasn't even working at a startup at that point. I, when it started airing, wow. I was still on government consulting. I was still living in D.C. So I had this outsider. Oh. So I didn't even uh, – it looked funny and I was like, oh, yeah, this is hell, LOL. And then – I actually moved into the Well, you experienced it, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) and so going from an outsider to being an insider and just seeing that trajectory and meeting people, for instance, like working with a guy who knew the guy who stole the iPhone that inspired the Holy Phone episode. Like that was a whole thing that happened. Like I had sold that iPhone prototype. It was iPhone 4 to, um, I forget which blog. It might have been like io9 or something like that. But that was based, that true story based in, was, was what a Silicon Valley episode was based on. And I ended up meeting uh, a friend of that guy who I ended up working with. Like, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, but when I look at the relevant DC- and timely. It's, that's how relevant and timely and smart Silicon Valley is, yeah. is that it can be applicable literally at any point in time in which you join a tech startup. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, Veep flipped for me too in that I started watching that show when I still lived in D.C. and was much more of an insider because of all my friends who worked in politics and I worked in government consulting and then flipped over as being an outsider midway through that show when I moved to San Francisco and subsequently started working in tech. So it's interesting that those two shows mean so much to me in different ways because of how they flipped in my life going from like knowing those characters from Veep, like very much knowing those people um, to knowing the people in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's very interesting. I feel like Silicon Valley is um, a shared experience between a lot of people who live up here. And either some people think it's really cool or some people who used to work in tech are like, yep, that's it. And I would rather, I don't know, um, go for a jog than to ever go back to tech work. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's basically making fun of a cult. But so you are rewatching Sopranos, which made it an easy pick for you to yes. get into talking about the Sopranos. I would like to rewatch the the Sopranos because I've watched it in real time with my mom and my godmother, <laughs> and I feel like I I was like in middle school, so I feel like a lot of the themes went over my head. But also, you know. My mom is half Italian. And so like watching The Godfather was like a history lesson. And so like I watched that at probably too young of an age as well. So watching crime mob movies was not completely outside of my experience by the time The Sopranos showed up. But I feel like a lot of the themes went over my head. And honestly, I like the finale. I don't think that's a controversial opinion. But I'd like to go back from the beginning to watch it just to see, especially after reading Difficult Men where – you get like a really inside look about how the whole show came together. And then they're going to be doing this whenever it happens. In many scenes of New York. Yeah. 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 Which I'll, and which it's I'll supposed to have like James Gandolfini's. Yeah. He's it's, playing it's young. It's supposed to star James Gandolfini's son, right? Correct. This is his first big – he's acted a few times, but his, actually his dad really didn't want him acting as a kid because of all the you know child actor connotations. So really yes. he's acted since um, his father unfortunately passed away. But uh, this is one of his first uh, big roles outside of kind of a few supporting roles on on other shows and, and movies. But yeah, it's set to premiere, I believe, in fall of this year. <laughs> That's not happening. That's not happening. <laughs> What's so, that? Wait, wait. What's that meme with Miranda Priestley? Or no, it's not Miranda Priestley. It's Jessica Lange. She's like, there isn't going to be a fall 2020, you <laughs> stupid bitch. I'm like, I think about that meme all of the time. Whenever somebody's like, yeah, 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 we'll just do it in the fall. I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> just cancel all your fucking plans, dude. It's not going to happen. No. And, and for me, I, so like this rewatch of The Sopranos for me is actually a first time watch. I've actually never seen it. So this has been a really, I mean, I know what happens because it had been spoiled for me. Sure. But this full-fledged watch has been amazing because one, um, it's, 
it's kind of been great to see where kind of prestige TV started. There'd been other shows on HBO for sure, like Oz and, um, and, you know, there'd been Homicide Life on the Street. There'd been a lot of some prestige drama before, but really this is one of the- I would the, also say NYPD Blue NYPD is like Blue, an influence for, for the show. sure, which is amazing because it was network. But yeah, it's absolutely right. so. Um, if well, you, so was um, Homicide Life, Life on, on the Street, street as well, yeah. which is the yeah. David- which is the David Simon show. Yep. Which so there were some risky, risky choices made. Not risky, but like choices that you wouldn't necessarily think would come from a, 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 a major broadcast channel. You would think that it would end up like on HBO or like a Showtime, but that was kind of impressive. And that's sort of like where some of the prestige golden era TV started. But and it gets included in the book. But I think that the focus is on a lot of like HBO, AMC, like the rise of cable television as well, because they have less restrictions, which I'm sure you'll talk about. Well, and that's interesting, too, is like, okay, so when HBO premieres in like what 1980 or something, this was like a big deal. And back then, really, their their programming was movies like they were the first i think the first broadcast of the star wars movies was on hbo and then after that you had I believe it yeah you Don't had need boxing a boxing matches 80s comedy specials which like you know were a dime a dozen back then like that's you know the stand-up special very much hbo yeah but then was a big part of that but just but, similar to the way netflix has become sort of like a behemoth in terms of stand-up specials hbo quickly became the comedy special that you would want to get for sure like the that's where you wanted to be that if you landed an HBO one person show, not like a showcase or whatever, like you made it, you made it as a standup. That was your that was your idea of making it, um, especially in the 80s, 90s. And then, you know, they move into programming in the 90s. So there's like the Larry Sanders show. There's um, our list. There's uh, and then, you know, later we get into Oz. Um, I'm trying to think of any other other kind of notable shows in the 90s on HBO. Um, but but really, the Sopranos you know, takes off in, in 1999 and then ends up, you know, just being a ratings powerhouse. So I think this is like a good way to transition into to my own, like kind of plot and everything for for Sopranos. But it's um, obviously, as you all know, a crime drama it was created by David Chase, as we've said many times already. The pilot was actually shot in 1997. That's when it was ordered. And really, Chase was in development hell for like three or four years until it finally premiered on HBO in January of 1999. Um, and it would run for six seasons. Oh boy. Yeah. If, I know. You go, if you read the book. He complains a lot about being in development hell and how much he fucking hates like working with studios. It's quite interesting. He had a he had an interesting rise to just even get to the Sopranos period. For sure. Yeah, his background is really fascinating. I'll go into that in a bit. But he the show will be on for 86 episodes and will f- the fi- finale will premiere on June 10th of 2007. Obviously produced by HBO, um, Chase Films, and then Brad Gray Television. So Brad Gray was like one of the major RIP, was one of the major producers on the show. They filmed it in New York City and obviously New Jersey, um, as that is a central point um, location of the show. And the producers throughout the show is just like a who's who is like David Chase, Brad Gray, Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, Eileen S. Landris, Terrence Winter, and Matthew Weiner, who we, as we talked about earlier, would go on to sh- be the showrunner for Matt and creator of Mad Men. I'm going to try to breeze through this plot as much as possible. I really kept it to one long paragraph, surprisingly, but I figured like with the behind the scenes is just so fascinating about this show. So the show revolves around Tony. Please Sopr- do not. 
would you say? Please do not come for us. We tried to, oh, it's just, I'm, this is just like, um, I don't know, a warning, a disclosure. Please do not come for us. We tried to pare down these yes. giant shows that just have giant personalities. Again, read the book, Difficult Men, if you want like a real in-depth look. We tried our best, but we only have so much time, we, just generally speaking. Seriously. So yeah, you don't want shows. a three-hour podcast. Four shows yeah. to cover. We could do a season. Nay, three seasons. Yeah, please know that we are breezing through these to the best of our capabilities. So please don't come for us if we leave something out. It wasn't, I mean, it was intentional, but it wasn't like an intentional diss or that we don't know or talking about. This is just for brevity's sake. All right. That's all I wanted to say. The show revolves around Tony Soprano, played by James Candolfini, a New Jersey-based Italian-American mobster. But to the rest of the world, he works in, quote, waste management, which actually, fun story about that. So as any of you who are familiar with mob movies or mob everything, mob culture, oftentimes these people work in, like, waste management, roadside, like, you know, they work in these kind of in infrastructure jobs. And um, my friend Jenny, who lives in D.C. and works in politics, um, was applying for jobs a couple of years ago. And she was looking for jobs that weren't on campaigns anymore and working more for like some of the nonprofits or um, kind of orgs or unions that were based in D.C. One of them was a comms job for the Concrete Pourers of America. And I was sending her the LinkedIn job description. She's like, oh, honey, that's a mob job. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, anything around like roadside construction, the Concrete Pourers of America, like things, waste management, like it's all going to have mob ties. So anyway, fun story. Uh, but we- I mean, it sounds the- sketchy as fuck, Emily. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> We Concrete de- pores is basically a euphemism for killing somebody, it feels it, like. I mean, some you're not just pouring concrete into those roads. I'll I'll leave yeah, it at you that. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, bada bing. <laughs> That's a good tie. That was uh, a, that was intended. We I mean, de- look, I was just re-listening to the podcast that talks about the movie Gotti, and yes. I forgot there's like a whole scene where they list all the boroughs in New York and then they call the fist <laughs> the Cosa Nostra. And I just I giggle to myself because it's like the complete opposite of the Sopranos. <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, let's make this as up, like obvious as possible. <laughs> so we deep dive mm-hmm. into Tony Soprano's life, where he juggles his family life as a husband to Carmela Soprano, played by Edie Falco, a father to Meadow Soprano, played by Jimmy Lin- Jamie Lynn Siegler, and Anthony Jr., a.k.a. AJ, played by Robert Eiler. His role as a son to Livia Soprano, played by Nancy Marchand, probably the craziest role, Um and cousin and mentor to Christopher Maltesanti, played by Michael Imperioli, all while leading a criminal organization where he's dealing with the power struggles between him and his uncle, Junior Soprano, played by Dominic Chianesi, and his close associates, Silvio slash BFFs, Silvio Dante, played by Stephen Van Sant, aka Lil Stevie from the E Street Band, um, and Paul, Polly Walnuts. <laughs> I had to get a Bruce Springsteen reference in of there. Of course, of course this, he did. There's also, so much. It's Jersey. It's so Jersey. Of course, I he was in the E Street love Band. It. So, the fun fact about that, they cast um, Stephen Van Zant uh, because David Chase saw him induct the Rascals into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the late 90s and was like, I need that guy to be on my show. And Stephen Van Zant actually originally auditioned for Tony Soprano, but HBO was like, we uh, need, this was his first acting gig ever. And HBO was like, we need a guy who has had some experience. This is why they went with Gandolfini, which, you know, obviously makes sense, but they actually created the role of Silvio Dante 
strip club owner and friend confidant, <laughs> specifically for little Stevie. <laughs> um, and then Polly, Polly Walnuts Gualitary. Uh, I'm sorry, I probably butchered that last name. And then uh, obviously, uh, you got to say it in a Jersey accent. <laughs> Gualitary. And earlier, Salvatore. There you go. See, it sounds so much better. Salvatore, big pussy, bon piancero. R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> you ever heard of a fucking salad, you fat fuck? <laughs> Played by Vincent Pastore. His mob, Tony's mob life and family life are further explored in therapy sessions with this psychiatrist, Jennifer Melfi, played by Lorraine Bracco, perfectly. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, I, yeah. And we'll go into the Goodfellas connections later in my notes. But uh, we are introduced to Jennifer during the first episode, during the first session together, because Tony is suffering from panic attacks. He ends up picking Jennifer as his therapist because she's Italian-American. And this doctor-patient relationship will continue to explore all the various aspects of mob life and his family life and his, you know, his issues with clear codependency issues. Um, as well as um, insecurity and toxic masculinity and all sorts of themes that, you know, we'll talk about. Um, but that relationship as doctor and patient will put their lives and reputations in danger many th- times throughout the show, so much so that at one point, um, Jennifer Melfi has to start taking um, her patients in a motel room because uh, there's a hit out for her. Basically, I reduced that plot as much as possible to get into the behind scenes and casting. So please, again, don't come for us. We tried our best. So behind the scenes, David Chase. <laughs> or just mostly like we just wanted to keep it as short as possible. You probably know just as much or if not more about these shows as we do. So let's just try and tell you something you may not know. Exactly. And if you it, really it, want to know, HBO has 200 hours of free programming now available. I highly suggest getting into The Sopranos. If you have an what Amazon, if you have an Amazon Prime account, uh, any show that was released on HBO within the last five years. Uh, or uh, later or earlier than five years ago um, is on, or three years. I forget what it is. Anyway, you have that available on Prime as well. Anyway, David Chase. yeah. I mean, but also they're just making it free to everybody. They're free to everybody. So David Chase, behind the scenes, had been struggling to make this uh, in, make his career into film. So he was like a prolific TV producer and writer. He had been on, you know, working on Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Switch, The Rockford Files, which he won his first Emmy for in the late 70s, I'll Fly Away, and Northern Exposure. So The Sopranos was conceived as a feature film about a mobster in therapy having problems with his mother, which <laughs> is a, such a broad stroke. Um, Though Chase was not involved with the mob or grew up in a mob family, his family is Italian-American, and he was raised watching gangster films as a kid. And though Tony Soprano is not based on him um, or anyone he knew, the dynamics between him and his therapist and uh, family are very much based on Chase's own relationships in his life. So, for example, his uh, at the time he was seeing – he was in psychotherapy – and so he based that relationship uh, between him and his therapist on on uh, Tony Soprano and Melfi. Um, and then uh, in turn, his relationship with his own mother, who he's described as overbearing, he based he would use that as inspiration for the relationship between Tony and Livia Soprano, which little little thing here that I'm going to find in my notes. 
She is probably the worst mother. David Chase, in this Vanity Fair article where they did a really deep oral history of The Sopranos, he said that he was picturing Anne Bancroft as Livia, uh, um, as Tony Soprano's mother, which is uh, which makes what? sense. Yeah, well, it kind of makes – I mean, she is a t- of Italian – or was a t- of Italian descent, uh, RIP, but like such a different character. Um, but somebody would go on oh, – I just meant like the actor – I mean, just to Nancy have – Nancy is just so different. Character. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, like, it just changes the character forever. T- completely, completely. Completely. So they read, they had 200 women read for that role. And then someone suggested Nancy Marchand because she was like um, a character actress. She uh, was, you know, had been in theater. She had done all sorts of over the years, um, was just like a prolific actor to the New York circles. And um, she sat down and did it, uh, according to him. And she was channeling that characters was based on his mother, obviously, and her mannerisms. He just knew how to, she just knew how to channel his mother or David Chase's mother so, so well that she just got the part pretty much immediately. And that he, I just have to say this, like, let's just take a moment to give some hard advice for you folks out there hoping to become parents or who are parents of young children. Get your shit sorted together. Go see a therapist. Make peace with your own grudges, et cetera, et cetera. Do all this before you have kids or, you know, maybe while you're having kids or else you just might find yourself being portrayed in your kid's TV show in such a way that it gets ranked as the number one, number three villain of all time in TV Guide magazine. That's what I have to say to my parent friends out there. Those who are listening that I know are parents are wonderful parents. But for some of you out there who are questioning nice your child. Them. Nice save. <laughs> nice save. I do. I do have friends who are you listening who are you parents. Said. But, but just you know. You will be getting some emails. <laughs> I will be getting some emails. But just know, therapy is a very useful thing. And if you don't want to put shit on your own children, go see one. Or else your kid may become a showrunner I one would- day who insists on basing a, psych- a psychopathic character on you. Look, if you want your child not to end up in comedy, please go get some therapy. And look, even if you don't have kids, I highly recommend therapy. It's great. Fantastic. You know, just do it once and see how you feel. I'm not saying that only a man would think that you have therapy one time and then you're all of a sudden cured like Sean and a cast member on a Bravo reality TV show. But... I, I, if I can shell it out to just work on myself, so can you, whether so you want to be a parent yeah. or not. Just shout out to our therapist, Mary. Shout out to our therapist. Mary! Secret, secret executive producer. I mean, one day she'll get the credits when we make it big. Uh, the story of the Sopranos. She wants nothing to do with this podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> So um, Chase would actually also draw inspiration from growing up in New Jersey to set the scene and feel of the show. So this, you know, like anyone I know who's grown up in New Jersey has said, yeah, this feels accurate in many ways. Um, In fact, the Soprano crime family was based on the Boyardo crime family which was a prominent crime family in New Jersey while Chase was growing up, in addition to the D. Cavalcante family. Um, Chase and producer Brad Gray, who was known for producing a ton of shows, including several of those HBO comedy specials we talked about earlier, and the Jeff Foxworthy show, Mr. Show with Bob and Dave, Larry Sanders show, Steve Harvey show, Politically Incorrect, Real Time with Bill Maher, basically any stand-up comic who has had a show on HBO Showtime or whatever, Brad Gray was behind it. He would later become the CEO of Paramount Pictures, um, which was a title he was ousted out of right before his death um, from cancer in 2017, sadly. But the two of them would pair oh, up to- right. yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Sorry, his, yeah. his wife, 
his widower or his widow, excuse me, has a connection to Real Housewives of New York. Sorry. Of course, it all goes back to Bravo. It all goes but back yes, to Bravo. Yes, I totally Bravo. forgot because that was so shitty. Yes. yes. Okay. I yes. remember all of that. Very, that was very terrible. sad. Well, and what's sad is because, yeah, towards the end of his um, tenure at Paramount, things were not going well from a financial standpoint. But he actually, um, during the beginning of his tenure as CEO, was responsible for like eight out of 10 of their highest grossing films uh, during a certain period. I forget what the actual years were, but he did a lot of good at Paramount. And unfortunately, towards the end, sadly, it also coincided with his um, illness. But the two of them, uh, Brad Gray and David Chase, would go on to try to pitch this show to uh, HBO. So they went to Chris Albrecht, the president of HBO at the time uh, of original programming, uh, they fil- financed a pilot episode, which was shot in 1997. So that's why there's a lot of difference in just age, especially with the kids. I always say with like pilot to actual show airing, you'll notice sometimes if that pilot was, you know, spent some time in development hell, you'll notice the age difference is very clear. So like if you watch, you know, just between episode one and two, how much different AJ and Meadow look from, from 97 to 99, it, it's pretty obvious. So they uh, would go on, uh, Chase would direct it himself, and they finished the pilot, showed it to HBO, and it was put on hold for several months. So Chase during that time actually considered going to moving it moving it forward as a movie um, to shoot and wanted to shoot an additional 45 minutes so he could kind of make it as package it as that. But then December or in December of 97, HBO decided to produce a series, ordered 12 more episodes for a 13 episode season. And the show would go on to premiere in January of 1999 with the pilot, which is titled The Sopranos. Um, and that's one thing to note here with the prestige TV is like um, with network there at the time, especially you had 20, you know, something episode seasons. Really, prestige TV was the first time where we were seeing kind of these shortened, let's keep it to, you know, 10, 12 episodes. Episodes a season. And in the case of some of the British series out there, like the original Office, which I'll talk about earlier, we're talking about, you know, like six episode seasons. So, or series, as they would say. So that was one kind of big stark difference here. Uh, but he, Chase, would serve as the show Rona throughout the whole uh, six seasons of the show and was deeply involved uh, in everything from, you know, soup to nuts. This was a guy who really didn't delineate from what he saw as his vision. So he would write or co-write between two and seven episodes per season, oversaw the editing, consulted with episode directors, gave actors character motivation, would approve the casting choices and set designs, do these extensive but uncredited rewrites of episodes. And this is actually interesting because that culture, you know, we're talking about the writer's room earlier at The Sopranos, Matthew Weiner's in that writer's room, this need to like control every single aspect of the vision, look and feel of the show very much extended to Weiner um, and how he ran Mad Men. So he, his attention to detail in Mad Men was so notorious, ensuring that all the references, clothes, movies, songs, et cetera, et cetera, were actually around during the month and year of each episode um, when it was taking place. So I believe once upon a time, there was actually a reshoot on one of the episodes of Mad Men for one of the scenes because they showed like a phone or something. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but they showed something and it was supposed to be like November of 1964. And this particular thing had not come out until like June of 1965. And so they went and literally reshot that scene so that it could be that accurate. And that level of detail and control, it's interesting how that culture, you know, ended up moving forward with the writers in that writer room and them taking it onto their own shows. Um, I don't really know if that was the case for some of the other writers um, in the room, but definitely Weiner to me, you know, came to mind when I was reading that. 
And what's uh, in terms of of casting? So this, what I'm going to say about all the shows that we're talking about today, for the most part, um, with the exception of Arrested Development, which had a few more notable people, but really three out of four did this um, casting of just like a lot of unknown actors, like real people who looked like real people, if you will. Like there wasn't this over airbrushed kind of feel of, of getting someone who kind of looked the part, but was more attractive. Like not to say that people on these shows are unattractive, but there is a very much a reason why you watch the Sopranos and you get sucked into it. And it's not just the great writing and the feel. It's also the fact that these actors were so perfectly cast. Many of these actors were Italian Americans. HBO like the has like a really HBO has like a really good track record, especially around that time for casting people who looked the part. Like if you look at Sex in the City, for if you sure. look at Oz, and then I would even say The Wire obviously uses a lot of yeah regular folk people if from you will. Baltimore. Um, Euphor- and even currently, like Euphoria does, yeah. they cast non actor actors to play roles to just sort of like con- to build an atmosphere that is actually convincing. And I think it's really worked out in their favors. Whereas like some studios are really scared to take a risk and have somebody that's not a name carry a show. No, for sure. The characters on this show or the actors who portrayed them on this show, um, many of them had appeared together in films and television before being on the show, most notably Goodfellas, which actually had 27 actors. So The Sopranos included 27 actors that were in Goodfellas, including Lorraine Bracco, who played Karen Hill, um, Ray Liotta, Henry Hill's wife in Goodfellas, um, who would play the Jennifer Melfi, the psychiatrist. Um, and then obviously Michael Imperioli, who plays Spider, the waiter gets shot by Joe Pesci. And then Tony Sirico plays Tony Stacks. The main cast was put together through auditions and readings and he... Chase throughout the whole thing had a big poker face, so they really didn't know if he liked their performance or not. Like, really notably, Michael Imperioli was quoted as saying, like, yeah, I had no idea if he liked me or not, but Chase had always had him in mind for the role of Maltesanti, specifically because of his uh, casting in Goodfellas. And then Lorraine Bracco was originally supposed to play Carmela Soprano, but she had, you know, because she had been a mobster's wife in Goodfellas, she was like, this is too close to what I played and I'm known for playing. She wanted to go for the role of Jennifer Melfi because she felt like it would be more of a challenge for her and her acting. Um, and then originally, uh, Polly Walnut, so Tony Sirico was, um, had originally auditioned to be the role of Uncle Junior before Dominic Chianesi landed the role. Uh, but he uh, was, put, you know, given the role of Polly Walnuts and his one condition because Tony Sirico actually came from a background of crime was, was with David Chase was like, this character better not be a rat. So <laughs> that was his one condition for playing Polly Walnuts was that his character wouldn't be a rat. Um, Steven Van Sant, as I had said earlier, he was obviously best known as little Stevie in the East street band, uh, Bruce Springsteen's band. Yes. And um, so very New Jersey and had no acting experience prior to being on The Sopranos. So and that you feel that with a lot of these actors, like I believe Jamie Lynn Siegler had been, I think, in one or two things, but she was a relatively new actress. Um, and then so was Robert Eiler. I mean, they, they feel like legitimate children. Like there, there is just so much that it doesn't they don't feel like your traditional kid actors. Um if you, you know, the cast of the debut season was obviously unknown actors and it works because as we've talked about earlier, the feels and looks, they look like the part you you're convinced that these are these actual people. And unfortunately for some of them, I think it led to some typecasting later. I think that James Gandolfini was never really able to um, have a role that would kind of 
get him out of the Tony Soprano shadow. And he was known for doing a lot of theater in New York. He's very much a theater actor. But unfortunately, you know, he has since passed away. But really, I think that for him will will always be the one role that people think of. I, I like, I oh, have yeah. seen him in he other talks things. About it. He talks about it in Difficult Men quite a few times about how he's really grateful for the role, but also how he was never able to break away from it. It was always this giant shadow over him. And I think the only time he was in a movie where he got praise for playing against type was that movie with Julia Louise Dreyfus, like Enough Said or something. Yeah, that was I like remember a really that. Cute was, little it was a really cute movie. And, and was, it was extremely charming in it. Yep. And like you said, he was known for being a theater actor. So when he blew up as Tony Soprano, he had no idea how to deal with essentially being this character in real life. It's sort of like Gus Fring too. Um, Giancarlo Esposito, like is, he will forever be Gus Fring. And so many of these people that we talk about in this episode will be forever typecast as this person that they came up and blew up as. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so really I'm just going to end it with, with this, obviously the Sopranos is regarded as one of the greatest television series of all time. It would go on to win Peabody awards, 21 Emmy awards, five golden globes, it's been the subject of obviously the book Margot has been referencing, so many other critical analysis. Um, it spawned books and now is actually spawning a prequel called The Many Saints of Newark, which is written by David Chase and Lawrence Connor and directed by Alan Taylor. And it's going to technically come out later this year. We'll see. Um, but it stars Michael Gandolfini, the son of Tony Soprano actor Emily. James Gandolfini. It's not coming out this year. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> um, that's really where I'm going to leave it. I we've, we've talked about it so much at this point, but yeah, go Sopranos. <laughs> so a highly recommended rewatch I, from both of us. Yes. So if you have felt the crush of peak TV or like I like to call it too much goddamn TV, you may have skipped over The Wire because it's extremely long and involved and some may view it as a downer. But I'm going to try my best to change your mind. If you want someone else to change your mind, I can always put you in touch with my friend John, who rewatches the the wire at least once a year. And sometimes wow. we'll just text each other shit, and like it'll just be like a text back and forth because we just love bunk and we love the wire. Um, but I haven't watched it as many times as John has. And when I came to the wire, again, my aforementioned uh, godmother, whom I watched a lot of HBO show that was uh, HBO shows that were above my mental pay grade with her and my mom, she worked on the fourth season of the wire. And that's where I started. So I didn't actually go back and revisit the beginning of the wire until I took a wire slash the corner class that kind of went through sort of the different cinematic tools that were used to tell the story that were different than what we'd previously seen, especially in dramas, and also how investigative journalism can contribute to a TV show and how those instincts are kind of used throughout the writing. Whatever, I'll get to it. Anyway, if you know one thing about The Wire, you definitely know, oh shit, Omar coming, because Omar I mean, coming. who doesn't know that? Who doesn't know that phrase? For a drama, this show gave us so many hunks, too. We have Idris. We have Michael B. Jordan, Dominic West. We get so many catchphrases. And that's how you know a show has truly arrived in the pop culture parlance is when you can say things like this or bring up actors and you can trace their lineage back to The Wire or another HBO prestige drama. Luckily for some of the actors in The Wire versus The Sopranos, they were never really quite as typecast um, mostly because they were such relative unknowns that by the time that they blew up in, say, like a Black Panther or blew up as Lu Lufa, DCI Lufa, you 
you had to go back into their IMDb to discover that they had actually been around for quite some time. And also, this is starting the tradition of bringing in British actors to play American parts. So The Wire was created by Baltimore police beat reporter David Simon. And The Wire is an anthology crime drama. It ran on HBO from June 2002 to March 2008, and it had 60 episodes over five seasons. Its unique story device was that each season would focus on a different facet of Baltimore's government. So for season one, we had illegal drug trade and also so many pagers, just so many beepers and burners. It's it's probably like the first time I was like, wow, people really did do this, calling on a fucking payphone and shit. The seaport system in season two, the city government and bureaucracy of Baltimore in season three, education in the school system in season four, and print news in season five. It was all shot on location in Baltimore. The large cast consists mainly of actors who were little known for other roles, as well as numerous real-life Baltimore and Maryland prominent figures in guest and reoccurring roles. Like Bubbles was the probably the most prominent non-actor who was just some dude. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. In Baltimore that David Simon had seen around and even Bubbles was a real person that is in the book The Corner and also in The Wire, obviously. But the character of Bubbles was just like a regular or the person who played Bubbles was just like regular Baltimore resident. So it was critically critically acclaimed, not just for the performances or the writing, but for the even though it was extremely praised for that, but also the overarching themes and how they handled society, politics and urban life so seamlessly without it beating you on the head or getting too preachy like after school special. Even though The Wire is widely regarded as the greatest television show of all time, it's never won a major award, like an Emmy, a Golden Globe, a SAG, which the SAG is truly, to me, the biggest offense because it has a fucking massive, talented cast, so I don't understand how that happened. And the ratings when it aired weren't that amazing, sweetie. So this was inspired by the events of Simon's writing partner, not that Ed Burns. He's a former homicide detector. uh, He's a former homicide detective and also public school teacher, which is why we have such a wide array of topics that are covered throughout the wire. So yes, not that Ed Burns. So he's a former homicide detective and not the star of Sidewalks of New York. Sorry, I went to go look up an Ed Burns movie and I was like, wow, I don't actually, I don't know if I've actually seen any of these except for Sidewalks of New York. (laughs) Who knew? Uh, Simon and Burns met when Simon began writing The Corner, the book that would later become, or the book that would later become the miniseries The Corner that would then lead them to a fruitful relationship with HBO that still continues to this day. At least for David Simon. I don't know what Ed Burns is up to. Simon was originally a reporter for the Baltimore Sun and spent a year researching homicide and the homicide police department for his book, Homicide, A Year Year on the Killing Streets, which is how he met Burns to begin with. Burns was on the Baltimore police department for 20 years, then later became a teacher. And the two of them spent a year together researching the drug culture and poverty in Baltimore for the corner. Their combined experiences were used for many storylines, not only for the Corner miniseries and the book, but also for The Wire. Prior to The Wire, Simon had another book turn into a Baltimore show, which was The Homicide, uh, Life on the Streets. But after some creative differences with NBC, 
uh, the studio that aired Homicide over the show over the show's quote unquote pessimistic tone, Simon took pains to ensure that The Wire didn't really deal with that kind of shit again. The Wire ended up on HBO after the success of the miniseries of the adaptation of The Corner, and Simon worked with the mayor of Baltimore, telling him that he wanted to not give such a bleak portrayal of certain aspects of the city. And so he was welcome to work there again, and he hoped that the show would actually change the opinions of viewers that saw Baltimore as like a sad, you know, avoidable place, which I think that it's mostly succeeded. I feel like especially in time and hindsight, people do attribute The Wire for just being aware of Baltimore's systematic racism and other problems that it has, because what makes this show successful because of the overarching themes, they're very relatable to any sort of urban city that's kind of been forgotten about. You can trade Baltimore for Detroit for... And I mean, David um, Simon's Simon's next show would be Treme, which is about New Orleans, like which is another city that has dealt with so much systematic racism. I mean, even his miniseries, Show Me a Hero with Oscar Isaac, oh boy, he has a knack for picking some really, really good looking leading men. But um, yeah, so even like Show Me a Hero, I I think that he does a really good job of showing you systematic racism and how it's affecting people's lives that you may not see or may not even understand at the time, but not beating you over the head with it and making you feel bad. It's just like, this is a problem and we need to work together to solve it. So what makes The Wire unique is a lot of its like style and music. Each episode begins with a cold open and doesn't really have too much drama. It's more of like a table setting for the theme of the episode. The screen then cuts Cuts to black or fades to white and then has intro music come in. The show's title sequence doesn't really show any characters. It's just sort of like a bare bones kind of title sequence. There's like a series of shots, mainly some close-ups, but not really a, a specific person. There's a lot of fast cutting, especially considering the large cast that it kind of does pretty well, where you always feel like you're able to follow the thread, even though you're always kind of cutting between. And I feel like for sometimes ensemble shows, And I feel like they do it extremely well in The Deuce later on as well, which is another David Simon show that I cannot recommend enough, especially if you want some drama rewatch, is that you you are able to get very invested in characters for the episode that they're on. And then you could not see them for an episode. But then the second you come back, it's like having an old friend. They there's something about the way that they tell the story that makes everybody feel like somebody that you are invested and know and you care about, even if you've never really met this person in real life. They always They're able to show this empathetic side that you really kind of like bond to. It's a progressive story and the arcs unfold over the course of a scene and a season and they use different locations at the same time. And very rarely does an episode actually end on a cliffhanger. It it kind of they do. They go through great pains to always kind of like close out the story for the episode, especially if it's like for a season. And I really appreciate that about The Wire. I think that's such clean storytelling Mm. that. Some of the golden era TV shows feel like drama is a cliffhanger, The Walking Dead, and a few others. But I I really respect The Wire for never leaving leaving the audience hanging. They have too much respect for the audience and their investment in these characters to not show you something that you don't immediately find out the consequence for. The Wire was also known for using primarily diegetic music or sound. So diegetic music or sound are pieces of music that come from a source within the scene, like a TV or a car radio. The opening theme is way down in the hole and... This is sort of the trend that they continue to use in terms of music throughout the show, which is it's a lot of gospel and blues inspired songs. And this particular theme song was written and performed by Tom Waits for his 1987 album, Frank's Wild Ears. Each season uses a different recording and a different opening sequence, different opening sequence with the theme music being performed by the Blind Boys of Alabama, Waits, the Neville Brothers, Dume J and Steve Early. 
the season four version of Way Down Into the Hole was arranged and recorded for the show and performed by five Baltimore teenagers, Ivan Ashford, Marco Steele, Cameron Brown, and Tariq Al-Sabari, and Avery Baragas, which... So my godmother used to work in music clearance and she worked with these young fellas and like a bunch of other local Baltimore artists um, to clear music for the show. And it was a very rewarding experience for her, if I recall correctly. Early, who performed the fifth season theme song, was also a cast member and he played a recovering drug addict named Wallen. The closing theme, The Fall, was composed by Blake Lay, who was also the music supervisor of the show. The Wire had such a successful soundtrack that they ended up having two albums called The Wire, colon, All of the Pieces Matter, Five Years of Music from The Wire, and also Beyond Hamsterdam, which were released in January of 2008. The last one, Beyond Hamsterdam, which is uh, a name from the show, is actually features a lot more of the Baltimore artists exclusively versus like, you know, like a wait song or something. The writers strove to create a realistic version of an American city, which, again, universal themes based on their own experiences. Central to the show's aim for realism was the creation of truthful characters. Simon had stated that most of them are composites of real-life Baltimore figures. For, entrance, for instance, Donnie Andrews is the main inspiration for Omar. Martin O'Malley served as one of the inspirations for Tommy Carsetti. The show often cast non-professional actors for minor roles, distinguishing itself from other TV shows because they pulled real faces and voices from the city it depicts. The writing also uses contemporary slang to enhance the immersive viewing experience, which, you know, there are also a specific Baltimore slang that you wouldn't hear outside of Maryland. And I always found that to be extremely interesting. Mm. In distinguishing police characters from other TV detectives, Simon makes the point that even the best police detect even the best police and detectives from the wire are motivated not by a desire to protect and serve, but by the intellectual vanity of believing that they are smarter than criminals and that they can figure them out. While many police do exhibit altruistic qualities, many officers are portrayed as incompetent, brutal, self-aggrandizing, hamstrung by bureaucracy and politics, which I think in the first season they depict very well almost every single team on that task force has one of those qualities to them. I mean, someone makes like extremely tiny miniature furniture throughout the course because they're just so over the bureaucracy and politics of being in the police force that they can't be bothered to be fully engaged in their job. By the same token, criminals are not always motivated by profit or a desire to harm others. Many are just trapped by their existence or by their certain sense of cer- certain set of circumstances that they were born into. The Wire doesn't minimize or gloss over the horrible effects of being brought up in the projects or being put into a disadvantaged place or being born into a disadvantaged place. The show, to piggyback off of that, the show's realistic in also depicting the process of both how fucking boring police work can be and how mundane criminal activity can sometimes be. Sometimes you are just like running money and you don't really know what happens or you are just in a house silently trying to figure out how somebody got shot through a refrigerator door and you're just muttering shit as you walk around. But but that's what makes that scene so brilliant. It's like they show even like the lame stuff, but even the lame stuff and similar like Breaking Bad and even Better Call Saul now, some of the lame stuff is just like the most interesting shit because you don't know what's happening. There have been reports that real life criminals watching the show actually learn how to counter police investigation techniques. So like there was like this whole big scandal about like the pages from season one about how criminals watch that and were able to outsmart cops with burner phones. And in the fifth season, <laughs> I know, uh, the fifth season portrayed like a working newsroom that was supposed to be the Baltimore Sun. And a lot of reporters have then said that it's essentially the best and most realistic portrayal of media in film. So suck a dick newsroom. In terms of seasons, 
central to the structure and the plot of the show. They kind of use what criminals are really doing, but also, again, they draw into the realism. They use like the the minute and boring details. So in the first season, they have electronic surveillance and wiretap technologies that aren't necessarily like super interesting on the face of it. But when you start to see how they use it against people or to build a case, like it becomes a little bit more interesting. Simon has gone on to discuss that the use of camera shots from the surveillance equipment or shots that appear to be taken from the equipment itself are to emphasize the volume of surveillance just in general modern life and that the characters need to sift through this information as to best protect themselves and to carry on with whatever they're doing. Simon described the second season as a meditation on the death of work and the betrayal of the American working class. It is a deliberate argument that the un- about unencovered capitalism, oh boy, this is relevant to right now, uh, <laughs> is not a substitute for social, for social policy. He added that season three reflects the nature of reform and reformers and whether there are any whether there is any possibility that politics actually progress or if long calcified grudges can mitigate forces that currently fuck up regular individuals. He did not say that. I am just paraphrasing. (laughs) The third season is also an allegory for the Iraq war. What a joy. Uh, Writer Ed Burns, who I said before was a public school teacher before retiring and becoming a writer for The Wire and working with uh, David Simon, he served as essentially the, he gave all of the stories for season four, which take place all in high school. Simon has also identified organizations featured in the show, like the police, City Hall, the public school system, Barksdale's drug operation, the Baltimore Sun, as comparable institutions. So he takes all of these institutions that are specific to Baltimore, but broadens out the themes enough to the point where you can superimpose them into any American city. Um, I have, and that's pretty much just it. I mean, I could just like talk on and on about how great The Wire is, but that's not, inter- that's not entirely interesting now, is it? Like I said, every season follows a different facet of Baltimore life, but really it follows a different facet of American life in an urban city. And that's why the show is honestly timeless and you could watch it anytime. Um, I do recommend you watch it in order, unlike I did, but because it is an anthology series, you could hypothetically pick up any fucking season or skip a season or whatever you want to do. I know many people who have skipped over the second season, but I think The Ports is highly underrated. I'm currently trying to rewatch it right now, but, you know, Better Call Saul just like fucked up my life this week with its season finale. So I'm not in an emotional place to get back into a drama, but also if you're just looking for some good dramas to watch, really, The Deuce is... So, so, so good. That's David Simon and George Pelicanos. And um, also Show Me a Hero is amazing as well. So this, unlike (laughs) The Wire, which uh, portrays many facets of Baltimore life, um, The Office kind of keeps it to the day-to-day of just a random office branch in the middle of the United States, which is interesting because really the the finale says it best, trying to find the beauty in pretty normal mundane things. I kind of paraphrase that uh, because that's really what the office does. It finds these little moments of happiness and joy and sadness and whatnot into, you know, during a day-to-day mundane office life. I'll touch briefly on the original vision version, but I will deep dive into the American version. So Office was a British mockumentary style sitcom that first aired on BBC Two, July 9th, 2001. It was created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant um, and produced by Ash Italia. The show revolves around an office branch in the fictional Warnham Hogg paper company with Gervais playing the branch manager, David Brent. 
This original British show ran for two series, which are seasons, each six episodes, and each series additionally included a Christmas special. While it had initially low ratings when it first aired on BBC Two, it would become immensely successful over reruns and then international broadcasts, including in BBC on BBC America, the United States uh, channel for BBC. Uh, it would become so popular, in fact, that NBC would, in 2005, um, order up a pilot um, for a series run for an American version of The Office. There have been many shows in the past that have gone from you know being original British shows to having American spinoffs, and it's been done successfully with American Idol, House of Cards, and Shameless. Not so much when it was Skins and The Inbetweeners. Those were both terrible reboots. Um, But The Office did it pretty successfully, and some say in an even better way. So in terms of the concept and development, this show, American Version, the American Version was developed by Greg Daniels, who would serve as the showrunner for the first four seasons. And what's impressive is the writer's room for this show, much like the other shows we've talked about, um, contain a who's who of comedy writing. The original writer's room was made up of Daniels, Paul Lieberstein, a.k.a. Toby from HR, Michael Shore, who would go on to co-create Parks and Rec with um, Greg Daniels and also create The Good Place, Mindy Kaling, a.k.a. Kelly Kapoor, who actually wrote most episodes out of any writer on the show, 24 in total. Um, and of course, Mindy Kaling is in everything now, and BJ Novak, a.k.a. Ryan the Temp. Ew. <laughs> this team stuck very closely to the documentary style. In fact, the producers would have discussions around whether each scene they were including in an episode would be feasible in a documentary setting. Greg Daniels stopped being showrunner after season four to go create Parks and Recreation with Michael Schur. After Daniels stepped down, Paul Lieberstein and Jennifer Salata, who's written for Home Improvement, Malcolm in the Middle, Newsroom, and Cobra Kai, uh, would go on to be showrunners for the fifth season. Um, Salata would leave after season six. Lieberstein would stay on as showrunner through the end of the season uh, through the end of season eight. Um, and then Daniels came back for season nine, the show's final season. While Gervais and Merchant were created as executive producers and even wrote and directed a few episodes, um, they didn't have too much involvement in the show. And what you'll see is that the pilot episode of The Office is actually a direct reshot of the British version. Um, and then because they wanted to stay true to the original and not venture too much from it from the beginning. And then that's when after episode two onwards, they go and kind of create its own version um, and make sure that it can stand on its own and not be, you know, correct, a direct uh, reflection of its British original version. In terms of who directed the show, Randall Einhorn directed the most episodes in the show. And fun fact, he was hired because he had directed several episodes of Survivor and could give it that jumpy, rough documentary style that the creators were looking for because they wanted legitimacy and accuracy in that respect. And then the show is notable for having several guest directors, J.J. Abrams, Josh Whedon, Josh, sorry, Joss Whedon, John Favreau, Harold Ramis, Jason Ryman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and actually several of the cast members would go on to direct episodes of the show, including Steve Carell, John Krasinski, Rain Wilson, Ed Helms, and Brian Baumgartner. Again, short plot, um, much like we've been kind of summarizing it in our other uh other TV shows. So much like the original series, the American version centers around the day-to-day activities of a regional office branch of a paper company. The company in this case is called the Dunder Mifflin Company, and the branch is in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The office branch manager, Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, was mirrored personality-wise to be like Gervais's David Brent character. While he's a nice person with good intentions, he often goes too far with some of his decisions, jokes, actions, um, and makes his coworkers very uncomfortable. The other main characters are based on characters from the original office, including Dwight Schrute, played by Rain Wilson, 
who's a sales rep and also has a fictional Michael Scott-created title, Assistant to the Regional Manager. Jim Halpert, played by John Krasinski, is another sales rep in the office who enjoys playing pranks on Dwight. He is friends with and harbors a crush on Pam Beasley, played by Jenna Fisher, who's the office receptionist, in addition to being his prank co-conspirator. She, however, is engaged to Roy, who works in the branch's warehouse. The two of them, though, Jim and Pam, will be the on-again, off-again love story, eventually getting together, getting married, and having a family together uh, through the finale. Uh, And then ruining all of it. And then ruining all of it. (laughs) The final main character, and I'm doing this based on the original opening credits, uh, Because really, this is an ensemble show. Everybody in it is fantastic. Everyone has great backstory, plot lines. We do get to see a reflection of everyone's personality. There are no, while they, you know, in credit from the opening theme, they may be secondary players. The other members of this office branch get really rich storylines, which is something I love. Um, But the final person in the major cast is Ryan Howard. Oh, my God. There's a crossover, too, because Idris Elba is also in the office. In the office. Exactly. Um, I almost forgot because I stopped watching the office at that point. Well, and it's Idris Elba. Yeah. Doing again, doing an American accent. Uh, (laughs) So the final person in the main cast is Ryan Howard, played by BJ Novak, who's initially a temp worker, but later promoted to sales rep. And it's interesting because his plot line involves him getting super promoted to being a VP and then directing director of new media until he's exposed for corporate fraud. He's fired. Then he works in a bowling alley. Then he goes to rehab. And then he eventually ends up as a temporary worker in the Scranton branch of Dunder Mifflin. So he comes back to where from where, whence he started. Um, again, I gave you a few main characters, but everybody on this show is just fantastic. And from a casting perspective, really, this is a fascinating, um, again, story of how you can get regular actors who look like these actual parts to play what like these fantastic roles. So Michael Scott contenders from original casting standpoint, um, Paul Giamatti was suggested by someone at NBC, but Giamatti declined, which like, I cannot imagine uh, Michael Scott as a Paul Giamatti character. I love Paul Giamatti, but this I'm I'm very happy this was a corral role. Um, The other interested folks included Martin Short, Hank Azaria, Bob Odenkirk, which again, Bob Odenkirk is forever Saul. People who auditioned for this role included Ben Falcone, Alan Tudyk, and Paul F. Tompkins, which I was surprised about, but I could kind of see. Um, Steve Carell actually was, you know, they were always interested in him, but he had been committed to a show, a mid-season replacement show called Come to Papa that was canceled. Um, so he ended up leaving The Daily Show to go film The Office. And he actually you only won't say, because yeah, yeah. I've literally never, never heard of heard that of, show. I did not hear about it until I read it on a Wikipedia page. Um, Carell only watched a bit of the first episode, yeah, of the British version to ensure that he wouldn't copy Ricky Gervais. And this is a nice segue to how they cast Dwight Schrute. So Rain Wilson, on the other hand, had seen every episode of the original show. And so when he auditioned to play Michael Scott, he gave what he even describes to this day a terrible Ricky Gervais impression. And the producers and casting ended up loving him in the role of Dwight instead, which makes sense. I mean, again, talk about rich backstory. I think Dwight is probably the most fascinating character on this show, just in the sense of background development. Um, just a great, great, great character. But the other people who would go on to audition for Dwight included Seth Rogen, <laughs> Matt Besser, Patton Oswalt, and Judah Friedlander, who was on 30 Rock, I believe, around the same time. So, um, and it, what's interesting with 30 Rock is that was, you know, the other NBC counterpart until Parks and Rec. And that would be the show that would end up winning all the comedy uh, Emmys throughout that time. So, The Office 
won some awards for sure, but really it was uh, 30 Rock that took the cake when it came to like the comedy Emmys during that time. Other people, uh, Jim and Pam, the original people they were looking at for Jim were Adam Scott and John Cho, and for Pam, Catherine Hahn, and actually Angela Kinsey, who would go on to be perfect as Angela Martin, um, who one of the accountants at Dunder Mifflin and later Dwight Schrute's love interest. So kudos to casting her in that role instead. They said she was too kind of snippy to be Pam, which makes sense. Um, and John Krasinski was actually best friends with BJ Novak in school, which is how he landed the audition. And then Jenna Fisher was told to look as gorgeous. Gross. Yes. <laughs> so gross. Jenna Fisher was told not to look interested. not interested. But I mean, I love John Krasinski. I think he and Emily Blunt are adorable together. There are far more problematic Johns out there than John Krasinski. Oh, sure. Um, I, I would say but, that I love him less the more I have to find out about him, but he's fine. That's true. That's true. Um, better than BJ. Better than BJ, for sure. Um, so Jenna Fisher was told by the casting director to literally bore her to death, basically. So um, Jenna Fisher created success. that. She's success. Extremely boring. I mean, and she did it right. Like, I mean, the, the role is perfect. I mean, I think there's like a quiet interest in Pam that we find, we get to over time. Um, but she did a great job on the role. And even the frizzy hairstyle that we saw in her earlier seasons is actually something Jenna Fisher did for the audition. So again, there everyone on this show there are some people who are more attractive than others, sure. But for the most part, when you see these people, they look like normal, everyday humans that you would see at your own office. And that was very much done on purpose. Um, some of the other interesting things was the casting process didn't involve a script. And they would just ask the actor several questions and then respond to the characters that they were auditioning for. In terms of kind of other things to really bring up when we're talking about this, uh, B.J. Novak was already a writer, but they decided to cast him as Ryan Howard after Daniels had seen his stand-up act. Paul Lieberstein was cast as Toby on Novak's suggestion after the cold readings of scripts. And Phyllis uh, was actually cast. She was a casting associate on this whole thing. And um, Ken Quapis, who directed the pilot episode, saw her and how she read with the actors who were auditioning, liked it so much that they cast her in the role of Phyllis. In terms of kind of the the uh, the show, there was a lot of research done um, with the writers going to actual offices after the pilot episode. They wanted to make sure that this was accurate as possible. And actually, Daniels would use the same kind of process with Parks and Recreation, where he would have them, you know, go to local government and and make sure that they were um, being as accurate as possible. But ultimately, I mean, the show is fascinating for me, one, because it launched the career of a few of these individuals, two, because of these uh, some of the people they cast who just had never had very famous roles prior, would had just been kind of minor character roles here and there, and three, just the writing talent that came out of it. So obviously, BJ Novak, Mindy Kaling are, are both very well known now. Michael Shore has gone on to do a plethora of things. And Greg Daniels, since The Office, has been able to kind of step out of that um, shadow and and go on to do other things, which is not, you know, was much more of a curse for some of the people in, say, the the realm of The Sopranos. I think that from an acting standpoint, some of the minor players in The Office end up getting typecast after this. But from a um, writer standpoint, a lot of these people will end up having careers at the after The Office. And that's really all I have to say. I could go into all the amazing episodes uh, like The Dinner Party and uh, Fire Drill, but really that it would be a season of episodes. And luckily- We all, 
We all already know those. We already know because people and still talk about them. Still, and talk to be about quite them. frank, I have similar feelings about people who just like constantly rewatch The Office that I do about Friends, which is there are other comedies. It's good, sure, but like, do we need to always be talking about The Office as if it's the only comedy that on- that ever existed? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I finally watched the, it, it in its entirety a couple years ago, and I really did enjoy it. I went in um, feeling like this would be overrated compared to because everyone seems to love it. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, but obviously for me, one of the biggest things is that this probably should have ended when Michael Scott left, when Steve Carell left. I think that would have been a far more powerful show. It, it also dragged on and you could feel For it real. drag on at that point. And, and while they got amazing guest stars, like obviously Robert California played by James Spader, Idris Elba, like they're great. Kathy Bates shows up. There's some great late season people who show up. Ultimately, yeah, I think the show lasted two, three extra seasons too long. And that's my office spiel. Oh, well, there's also a very interesting story from Mindy Kaling's book, Is Everybody Hanging Out Without Me, where she talks about how she threw a fit one time in the writer's room and stormed off, and she thought that she had lost her job. It's not necessarily a likable story about her, but I think about it every time I watch The Office now. First of all, how dare you? How dare you? I mean, I'm not going to say it's all bad. It's it's hard to say. I think it's like the last three seasons really sort of ruined any love I had for the show by just going on too long and fucking up Pam and Jim and well and like, so yeah but it's not something that I feel compelled to rewatch the way that I rewatch 30, Wa- 30 Rock and Parks and Rec I don't really know maybe it's just because of like the manness of it all like the lead is you know Michael Scott and there are just times where you're like I have to like hide under a rock because I oh, feel so sure. much like secondhand embarrassment but, I, but and I, it's like if there's an episode on, I don't turn it off, but I don't seek it out, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I watch maybe two or three episodes over and over again, like when I need to laugh. But really for me, I, I still love the show, but I don't need to to rewatch it. It's not going to be my white noise show the way it is for some other people. All right. Well, Emily had to go. So now it's just me. It's just you and me all alone on this podcast. What's going to happen to you? I don't even fucking know what's about to happen. This is about to be really weird. There's nothing that I hate more than just rambling on ad nauseum with no one to stop me. But look at where we are. Look at us. Look at us, Paul Rudd gif. Okay. So Emily talked about The Office, which I shared some slight disdain with. And, you know, let's talk about another comedy whose later seasons have sort of eroded a lot of good feelings and memories, but still has... So many inside jokes, especially now. No touching is extremely relevant to our lives currently. I'm going to talk about Arrested Development. Uh, I think I watched all of Arrested Development really late one night on Hulu in college when Hulu let you have a free account and didn't uh, have commercials, which was truly amazing. I also watched all of American Dad this way. Insomnia is real and it is currently affecting me and I feel some sort of all night binge sesh is definitely in my future and maybe it'll be arrested development but the first three seasons are and i don't like to use this word lightly perfect comedy it is extremely funny it kind of shares a lot of the same camera qualities or or style qualities as um as the office in terms of like handheld work but it is just oh what what a joy what a joy and a pleasure to watch arrested development so as i'm sure you're familiar with the plot great cool i'll still mention it at some point but Let's just start from the beginning. It was created by Mitchell Horowitz, who had worked on Golden Girls, but he also worked on groundbreaking shows like The Ellen Show back before Ellen was a complete dick. Maybe she was a dick then. We don't know. I can't put that on her. But he's also worked on the AppFab TV movie. I mean, you know, the list, it continues to go on. Um, And more recently, he worked on Lady Dynamite, which is an excellent comedy. 
Arrested Development aired on Fox, surprisingly. Well, Fox has Bob Burgers, Bob's Burgers now, which is a great comedy. So they have the capability to produce some great comedies. But similar to ABC and them canceling Happy Endings and Be in Apartment 23, like we had mentioned, sometimes you don't know what you got until it's gone. Arrested Development aired on Fox for three seasons originally and premiered in November of 2003 and ran until February of 2006. The show follows the Blues, a formerly wealthy, dysfunctional family, which, you know, I I feel like every time I've watched this show, it makes me think about The Real Housewives of Orange County, not to always make it Bravo related, but isn't it always Bravo related? It's known for its trademark, as I mentioned, handheld camera work and Ron Howard's narration. Ron Howard, John Burroughs alumni. It's set in Newport Beach, California, and it was primarily filmed in Culver City and Marina Del Rey, which are not in Orange County, but are not far off, just as might as well. If you're driving from the Valley, it's still just as fucking far. Even though Arrested Development was critically beloved and won awards, it was still canceled. So that cannot save you alone. Arrested Development and The Wire have something in common in the sense that while The Wire was critically acclaimed and beloved and is called one of the greatest TV shows of all time, it never won a single award. Arrested Development was called one of the greatest comedies of all time, was critically beloved, actually won awards, and still got canceled. So that just goes to show that you can literally do everything right and still end up getting fucked. Why bother? But in 2011, Netflix agreed to license new episodes and and to distribute them exclusively on their streaming service. So we had the first batch of episodes that came out in 2013, and then we had this truncated two-part, I think it's the last season. I don't really know if they're going to put out new episodes, but I did not finish. I actually didn't realize that the second half had come out in March of last year. But the final season that got split into two came out in May of 2018 and the second half in March of 2019, which I think it was that remix, like chopped and screwed Arrested Development season, which was like, why the fuck is this happening? Just make the show, you fucking clowns. Like, I don't understand. But, you know, with the Jeffrey Tambor of it all, which I will talk about, and I apologize in advance, it's the last thing in my notes and there's no Emily to like temper any of this. So you can go ahead and send her emails and tweets if you have a problem with me ending on the Jeffrey Tambor scandal. The discussion that led to the ultimate creation of this show began in the summer of 2002. Ron Howard originally actually had the idea, which go figure, to create a comedy series in the style of handheld Christopher Guest comedy movies. Uh, But so it was like a combo of like handheld, but also reality. So it is like a mockumentary, which I don't know why I didn't just write that because I hurried through these notes because, oh boy, you can give me a week to put together notes, but you know, I'm putting that shit together at 1158 the night before, baby. Some things don't fucking change. Ron Howard, mastermind behind the show and the narration, wanted to create a sort of mockumentary Christopher Guest style TV show, but with more elaborate and highly comical script aspects. So some of that has to do with like the creation of inside jokes that the show kind of repeats until it feels like you're part of the family. It also has to do with some of the narration, which I will talk about in a second, but was supposed to only set up the first season, but they liked it so much and kind of added to this like high level absurdity to the comedy that they just decided to fucking keep it. Ron Howard met with David Nevins, president of Imagine Television and Katie O'Connell, who's senior vice president, and two writers, including Mitchell Hurwitz, to talk about this idea. Because there were, it was 2002, there were a ton of corporate scandals. Think Enron, think uh, uh, Bernie, well, I guess Bernie Madoff scam, Ponzi scheme stuff happens probably about 2004-ish time. But, you know, scammers be scamming, especially fucking rich people. If there's one thing that we've learned from this pandemic is rich white people gonna scam and dump stocks and do other fucked up shit. So we shouldn't be surprised. Anywho, in light of those events, plus what will 
end up highlighting uh, the economic crash of 2004 and also the real estate bubble bursting around that same time. And it was very interesting because they are land developers in the show. They decided that they wanted to have a riches to rag sort of story. So if you've ever seen Christy Alley and Tim Allen in For Rich or Poor, it's sort of like that, except, you know, you just take out the Amish aspect and actually make it well-written and starring people who are very funny. Not to say that Christy Alley isn't very funny, but she is, um, you know, we can all hope to be Billy Eichner to get blocked by her one day. <laughs> so Ron Howard and Imagine were immediately interested in using this idea, and probably Hurwitz must have had some good pitch in the room because they decided that he was going to start the show and he was going to write it. They sold it in the fall of 2002, and it actually started a bidding war, which was kind of surprising, between two, well, two studios that wanted to sort of stake their claim in the comedy world at the time, Fox and NBC. Ultimately, they sold to Fox, which would be a bad idea, came to light, and they gave them a six-figure put penalty, which means that if they don't put the pilot that they're about to shoot on the air, they have to pay Hurwitz and Ron Howard a bunch of money. So over the next few months, they developed all of the characters and the plot for the show. They wrote the script for the pilot episode. It was filmed in March of 2003 and then would later premiere in November of 2003, which is just what we needed at that time, huh? So the casting. This was something that was actually really surprising to me. <laughs> Aaliyah Sawcat of um, I'm Not Dating Brad Pitt, We're Just Friends fame was the first person to be cast in the series, which maybe is probably one of the funniest, best characters. That Ocean Walker joke is one of my favorite reoccurring jokes. I love the sexual tension between the person who was cast after her, Michael Sarah, and then Tony Hale and Jessica Walters were all kind of cast around the same time because they all submitted tapes and were flown in in person later on to audition for Fox. Jason Bateman and Portia de Rossi read an audition for the network room and were immediately chosen, which, you know, Jason Bateman is the perfect straight man. And Portia de Rossi, I mean, she was great and popular as like sort of like a vapid rich girl. So hello. Uh, it sounds like she was a complete shoe in. Apparently, Job was the most challenging person to cast. Will Arnett, when he auditioned, he played the character like a guy who thought of himself as the chosen son, even though it was obvious to everyone else that he's a fucking idiot and nobody likes him. He was chosen immediately for his unique take on Job Bluth. Tobias and George Sr. were originally going to have minor roles, but David Cross and Jeffrey Chambor's portrayals mixed so well with the rest of the characters that they made them even more significant within the plot of the show, which I find, I, thinking about it now, like I can't even imagine George Sr. not being an integral part of the show. I mean, he's the catalyst for the whole thing going off to begin with. I mean, I guess you just put him in jail and then that can kind of be the arc of the show. It's just this family coming together while the patriarch is in prison and put them in a precarious living situation. Tobias, I could see you not thinking anything much of him, but David Cross being of Mr. Show ilk and all, I mean, never nudes. I don't know how that came apart. I'm again, threw these notes together last night. I apologize. These are not more in depth as I am asking myself questions that I would actually like to know the answer to. I'm sure there's some sort of Comic-Con panel where David Cross is happy to tell you all about how he came up with never nudes and jean shorts and all of that. But I just just bless this show for the term never nude. As I had mentioned earlier, Ron Howard was only going to provide the narration for the initial plot. But again, one of those things that once, once you put it all together, they're like, this is something that we need to do all of the time, like some reoccurring Zoom happy hours that are going on. Howard also aided in the casting of Lucille, too, because, you know, he's an old school actor type. He is from the Andy Griffith show. He's been in showbiz for a really fucking long time. So, of course, this dude knows Liza Minnelli. Ron Howard is also, as a Burbank person, he's also extremely nice and has donated quite a bit to my old high school. And who has anything bad to say about Ron Howard? You really got to take a long, hard look in the mirror if you have anything bad to say about Ron fucking Howard. Like, what is wrong with you? It's like 
taking candy from a really nice ginger baby. Anyway, of course he knows Liza Minnelli. And he managed to talk her into taking the role of Lucille too, which I think is was it's probably next to cabaret is her best role of all time it almost makes you forget about all that weird david guest stuff that happened okay what made arrested development different from other comedies at the time again cast your mind back to a time not even just like pre-pandemic life but even before that a time in 2002 where you know i don't know what was i wearing in 2002 oh i was definitely wearing like roxy board shorts and long sleeve shirts underneath t-shirts and i thought that was the epitome of style so cast your mind back to a pack sunday a day where we could go to a mall maybe enjoy a corn dog walk around make some questionable decisions with our hair um i mean again just the questionable decision about your hair is definitely currently happening to me right now as i stare at my ends mid sentence and get distracted by how terrible they look okay that's not important june 13th that's my haircut. So what made it different? Arrested Development used a lot of elements that were kind of rare for a TV comedy at the time. First of all, they didn't have a laugh track, especially for a sitcom that was still sort of not totally heard of. Now, if you have a fucking laugh track, you are laughed out of TV. Just ask Whitney Cummings. Her TV show dared to have a live studio audience and everybody took a shit all over that. Remember? They also decided that they were going to shoot on location and shoot handheld. So it was going to be single cam. It was going to be shot in HD. It was going to be not shot in front of a live studio audience. All of these things sort of set the standard for comedies that would be produced later on. Like 30 Rock is the first one that comes to mind that made that a conscious decision, especially for a big network like NBC, where they are sort of not in the business of doing things that they don't like that they've never done before. I think Fox is also in a similar boat. They also made a lot of use of the cutaway gag, which again, will set the template for a lot of great comedies that will come after it. Again, like 30 Rock, like Parks and Rec, like The Office, where they do just quick cutaways to other people's reactions. I, the thing that really sticks out, the, sticks out in my mind the most is anytime they would cut to Jason Bateman just shrugging his shoulders and essentially saying with his body, if not his mouth, I don't know what I was expecting. And I just feel like that's just a resounding feeling in everybody's life. It's just like, I don't know. I had the audacity to hope that this would turn out the way that I that I thought it would or that I thought my family would be normal. And it's just obviously extremely relatable content. Obviously, the genius use of Ron Howard's undercutting narration is also really great. Like, that's where we kind of get the, like, he didn't audience that kind of stuff, especially um, like the banana stand episode. I think that that's some of the best narration work of the whole season. It's extremely funny and it's used. I was always told by a screenwriting teacher that you don't want to use voiceover as a crutch. And I think that Arrested Development made people think that like they didn't use it as a crutch, but I think it gave everybody the boldness to use voiceover and then they used it poorly. But this is like a perfect example. The first three seasons, even the first season it was on Netflix of how narration can really, or a voiceover can really bring a story together and actually add to it and make it very funny, but you have to use it smartly. And they used it extremely smartly. That's probably not what a smart person would say out loud. That's not a good smart person sentence, but you get what I mean. Arrested Development also developed a really unique self-referential kind of comedy. And I think that this really worked for the show's favor because a family, a group of friends, they have self-referential in-jokes that they all kind of say with each other. And then I think when you become a part of a TV watching community, for a lack of a better term, you all have that same shorthand where you can say no touching or the money's always in the banana stand or how much could a banana possibly cost, Michael, like $10? I mean, 
it's stuff like that. Or here's five bucks, go see a Star Wars. There's just like a shorthand where like, you know that you have some jokes like that with your family, with your friends, where you could just say that and everybody just immediately starts laughing. And I think if you keep watching this show where initially maybe Fox thought it was like a put off, it ends up working in the show's favor where I think it gives you more of an entree into pop culture if you have if you have the ability to create some funny in jokes that people can kind of have a quick sort of way to signify, you know, don't touch anything with no touching. And you just picture a little child screaming that because it's take your daughter to work day at the prison. With every end comes a new beginning and Arrested Development. Like I said, it ended with its third season on Fox in 2006. Despite a months long rumor that Arrested Development was going to be picked up by like Showtime or another series, which I remember those rumors, they ended up not moving to another network. And Hurwitz explained that, quote, I had taken it as far as I felt I could take the series. I told the story I wanted to tell. And we're getting to the point where I think a lot of the actors are ready to move on, end quote, which he's not wrong. I think there's something like we I had complained about The Office. There's something to be said about getting out while the getting is good. I feel like too many shows and like I had complained earlier about Westworld, there are too many shows that drag on and on and on and they've already told the story. So they tell new stories or they, they go back and like ruin characters that you've loved so much by just sheer will of going on for too long so in some ways it was like okay good they got out and like it seems like it was a mutual decision Hurwitz continues that he was more worried about letting down the fans in terms of quality of the show dropping so he decided not to give them any more new episodes but he said that he'd be open to maybe not necessarily a weekly episodic series but maybe like a longer movie which he ended up sort of getting in the end in October of 2011, at a panel for the New Yorker Festival in New York, Hurwitz basically said, okay, we're going to do a fourth season and we're going to have a lead-in film adaptation. Six years after the series had been canceled by Fox, a 15-episode revival was greenlit by Netflix in May of 2013. So the f- after that, we had the first eight episodes of the fifth season in May of 2018 and the remaining eight episodes in March of 2019. I think it's because the first six episodes didn't kind of pop off the way that they had wanted to. Like, it wasn't necessarily like a bad season. I feel like the more I rewatched the Netflix season, the, fr- the fourth one, not the fifth, because I had only watched half of it and it was just not great. I feel like they got very ambitious because they had Netflix money, which you kind of see in like Gilmore Girls, which I never finished because our therapist said it was terrible and it would just make me hate the show. But I think you get blinded by the money and the ambition of trying to do something different when, I don't know, maybe you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Maybe you just need to like keep telling the story that people want to watch. I-, I think that sometimes creators and showrunners get bogged down by that kind of stuff. Okay, I'll start with the funniest legal incident. So you might remember this because it was sort of all over the place and was extremely funny. It was over the episode called Motherboy Triple X, which is Lucille and Buster go to compete in the Motherboy competition. He bails to spend time with Lucille, too, and so she drags George Michael with her instead. Well, did you know that there is actually a metal band called Motherboy and that they were legally required to make a distinction between the Motherboy event and the band Motherboy? Yeah, I don't know. That was always really funny. If you look up a picture of the band Motherboy, just have yourself a good laugh. Just go ahead and Google that. And also, safe search on, you guys. So in November of 2017, prior to the announcement of the fifth season, Jeffrey Tambor was accused of sexual misconduct by multiple women from the show Transparent, which led to him leaving that show. And so when the fifth season of Arrested Development was announced, it was affirmed that Jeffrey Tambor was going to be a part of the show. After all, they'd already they'd already filmed all of it prior to the misconduct charges. This kind of reminds me of the RuPaul Drag Race current season drama with, Cher- with Cherry Pie. It's like you... You find out that this person is actually like kind of a piece of shit behind the scenes. 
but you've already filmed all this stuff. You can't quite cut them out. So you just kind of have to release it and grin and bear it. But the promotion of this fifth season is kind of like what led to some uh, uncomfortable moments like we had talked about making Jessica Walters cry. So there was an interview with The Hollywood Reporter in May of 2018 where Tambor apologized to his actions that led to that accusation. And then he had mentioned the blow up with Jessica Walters during production of Arrested Development. And that's when we saw her get asked and then she she got asked about the incident. She started to try and say that, you know, in almost 60 years of working, she had never had somebody yell at her on set. But then Jeffrey Tambor started to talk over her and people started making excuses for him. And it was just very, very uncomfortable. Jason Bateman sort of stepped in a little bit by saying in the entertainment industry, it is incredibly common to have people who are in quotes, difficult. It's a weird thing. And it's a breeding ground for atypical behavior. And certain people have certain processes, which is kind of bullshit. Like, I just think it's bullshit. You don't need to yell at anybody at work. And if you do, then you should take a moment and then come back and genuinely apologize because it makes you and only you look like the dickhead. And then everybody having to put up with it feels uncomfortable. And then you force People that you think might be a nice person in real life to make up excuses and apologies for you. And nobody fucking wants to hear that shit. Ugh. Anyway, uh, Tony Hale, you know, who I also love, but maybe I'm just predicting some like Buster-esque qualities, even said that everybody has their bo- their bad moments. I think David Cross really kind of like stepped in it the most by saying it was a cumulative effect. He's also said some other dumbass shit where you're just like, please stop speaking. Anyway, the only person who came to her defense at all was Aaliyah Shawkat because she is an A-plus human saying that it doesn't mean that it's acceptable to treat people badly just because these white guys want to fucking normalize it so they can go back and have things be the way that they have always been. Eventually, Hale, Bateman, and Cross all issued apologies to her, but I would say just like clapping for essential workers at whatever fucking time you want to do it, the best reward is maybe not doing that publicly and maybe just not doing it at all. Maybe just staying home or maybe just not fucking defending a person that's indefensible when no one fucking asked you to fucking cap for him and be Captain save for a white guy who has had a great career, but maybe he's really fucked up something. I mean, come on. Anyway, Netflix ended up canceling the UK press tour because that blew up so fucking badly. And maybe that's why they ended up burying the second half of the season premiere because I have zero recollection of that coming out. Michael Sarah, I'll give the last word to him. He was not part of that group interview, but he says, quote, obviously, I had to give a lot of consideration to whether I take jobs with anyone and to think about how it affects people. And that, you know, maybe he'll think twice about working with Tambor, who I think effectively has not really worked since the transparent debacle. And who boy, I've been talking for a really fucking long time. And I think that about does it for this episode of Prestige TV. I apologize if we didn't cover the things that you wanted us to cover. Again, these are massive shows that we just wanted to, you know, have some space and time to talk about, especially with you being at home. Hopefully, if you can stay at home, that you are at home. And if you want a break, if you're like me watching just a ton of 90 Day Fiance and maybe re-watching some feel-good movies like Josie and the Pussycats, if you want a break or if you've missed The Sopranos in your lifetime or The Wire or somehow you managed to not watch The Office or you didn't watch Arrested Development, these are all great shows. The Office is still streaming on Netflix, as is Arrested Development. HBO has all has 200 hours of content that you don't even need a Prime account for. You could just pop on and watch it. I mean, I told my mom that. She's thrilled. She's rewatching The Sopranos too. Everyone is rewatching The Sopranos. I need to start. I need to fucking get off my sad Better Call Saul high horse and just need to get into some mob shit, I guess. So as you know, we have been keeping a blog on Medium this season. So if you want to read some supplemental content about our season three topics, you can visit us at Old Millennials Pod on Medium. We will be 
updating it more in our off season. You can probably expect to see about two to three posts a month once we wrap up next week, because next week is our season finale. And we can't wait for you guys to hear what we got, because it is truly going to be an, <laughs> an interesting, weird deep dive. And I'm very excited about all the research. So you can check that out. We have a Facebook page. We're at the Old Millennials Pod. We're at the Old Millennials Pod on Instagram. You can follow me and Emily on Twitter if you would like. I'm at Marg She Wrote. She's at Emily A. Beijan. Uh, you know, I guess I could beg for reviews, but like, you know, you know what to do if you like this podcast. I'm not going to fucking tell you what to do. The one thing that I will tell you to do is to stay home, watch The Sopranos, wash your hands obsessively. And until next time, I am going to give you a goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.